Welcome to the Line Break Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my co-host, Bob Sikora. Hello. I realized uh, editing last week's episode, I start every show saying, I'm the host and you're the co-host, and that's just not true. <laughs> I was like, why do I do that? <laughs> so, so I guess it's a little verbal tick, but here we go. Because um, saying top twice is, is rough. Yeah, it, it's it's... It's a whole extra syllable with like a hyphen, you know, it's, it's tough, it's tough stuff. Um, so this week we are, uh, we're talking political poems, much like basketball poems, uh, something that's kind of endemic to the podcast, but we're not, you know, always explicit about. So this is a broad topic and to try to get a little more specific, I wanted to get into how poetry affects political imagination. There is a time and a place for overtly political poems for real Hay Forks and Torches at the Castle Gates political poems. And certainly, as we record this in August 2020, there's a lot going on. But we're not a hard politics podcast. We're a poetry podcast. Poetry is something of a precise medium, specific and careful with diction. But it's also a limitless medium. A poem can imagine whole surrealist worlds like Zach Schomburg does. A poem can be an essay like Claudia Rankine frequently does. A poem can tell a story like Shakespeare or Homer. And speaking of epics, a poem can even go so far as to reach back across the centuries, pull out fragments of an ancient text, and update it to tell the story of a couple of gay teenagers in the 20th century, like Anne Carson did with Autobiography of Red. What I'm getting at is that reading and writing poems requires an active and open mind. An active and open mind is a rare thing in politics. The word gridlock is used frequently to describe, say, a bill passing. Often important ideas like universal health care or the Green New Deal are met with derision or a dismissive, that's not the way things work. That, of course, is almost never true, but it can easily become an entrenched attitude. And then, every once in a while, a person or a movement comes along and throws a wrench into the system and things change. It may seem sudden, but it's usually not. Movements are the product of language and evolving thought, the ways that we can imagine our communities and the world. Take, for instance, last week's NBA strike. That was a product of years of work from the Black Lives Matter movement, plus an increased sense of organized labor's power that's developed as America has plunged deeper into economic inequality, plus hints from players like Kyrie Irving and George Hill that resuming the season wasn't worth it. All of that coalesced into the collective unconscious over the last few years and resulted in a historic, if short-lived, strike. And you can reasonably trace its origins to the simple language, stop killing black people, which is sometimes met with a very unimaginative how. There's a better world to be imagined, and a lot of people who are unwilling to imagine it. Now, I'm not going to say that a subscription to plowshares or fence is going to solve police brutality. I just want to use that as a specific example of language and imagination really mattering. If politics is frequently a failure of the imagination, poetry is where we turn to expand our imagination. I use failure of the imagination because it's a phrase that stuck with me. Long time ago, around about 2009, the great Noah Eli Gordon was visiting one of my college workshops uh, where I was a student, not a teacher. <laughs> um, he probably doesn't remember this, but um, someone in the workshop asked him the uh, what do you say to people who say this is inaccessible and frivolous question, the what are we doing here thing. 
And he said something along the lines of, without stuff like this, you get a failure of the imagination. You get the Iraq war. And that's always stuck with me, that phrase, failure of the imagination, and him connecting what could seem like a frivolous liberal arts pursuit to the Iraq war. If you can't immediately wrap your head around a poem, try again. And if you can't think of a solution besides bombing an entire region of the planet, definitely try again. Bob, you're a great poet and a thoughtful person. You have anything nice to say about Dick Cheney? <laughs> not, not one single thing. <laughs> Good, because if you did, I would, I would just end the podcast right here and we'd be like, all right, <laughs> this was a fun run. <laughs> Uh, so, I wanna, seriously, uh, um, yeah, poetry affecting the political imagination is where I wanted to go. I want to I want to piggyback on a million different things you said. Um, I think as as you pointed out, we didn't we don't aim to be an inherently political podcast, but I, I mean I think it's it's part of what made poetry interesting, probably to both of us, um, even from an early um, you know early getting into poetry. Um, and, uh, it's funny that you, I, I had not heard that story, um, uh, about Noah Eli Gordon. Um, that's funny to me because, um, that exact same phrase, failure of the imagination. And I don't know where I pulled that from. Um, but it's that, from somewhere. He didn't right, make it up. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't know where I got it from though, but that's been really important, um, to my work, um, as a poet, anyone, um, of the three people who follow my work, uh, know that I'm <laughs> deeply invested in utopian kind of thinking. And I, I have uh, notes for an essay that I have tried to write for two years, and I've never actually gotten to the writing portion, but about that kind of relationship between poetry and a political imagination. Like you said, so much of politics, at least in this country, has part of the conversation is this, this like, is that idea of like, we can't do that, or this is the way it's supposed to be done. This is the way it's always been done. Um, you know, and I think all that does reflect this kind of failure or lack of imagination. And I, and I think there is this, this other end to that. Um, again, I'm thinking of like how that manifests in language, but how poetry is the place where in theory, everything we know about language is out the window. And it's a yeah. place where we have to push um, at language and put pressure on it um, in imaginative and in new ways, because like that is, if not the, one of the central things I think that the art form demands. Um, yeah, is, I would agree. That's exactly what I was trying to get at uh, with the uh, poetry is a precise medium thing. Mm-hmm. You said it so much better than I did. That's yeah, that's exactly it. That it's because I have notes. Cause I've been trying to say it right. For two <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Like poetry if anything, is a medium made out of language. Um, And it's a compact medium made out of language, so every word really counts. Right. Um, And I do, I I very much agree with what you're saying. It's, I don't come at this with a belief um, that poetry often makes any sort of quick, concrete, um, you know, legislative changes in the world. I'm not that naive about it. But I, I, yeah, I, I, I do think its power, you know, maybe exists kind of like you're saying in, in the roots it lays, um, in the ways that it, you know, ticks someone in just just the right way to start thinking about something a little bit differently or to see the world anew. 
Um, yeah, I um, yeah, not to blow too much smoke up our own asses about our our chosen medium, but uh, I've heard lots of artists um, say like, to be better in my field, I read poetry. So it's like you don't have to be a poet like like fiction writers and songwriters. Uh, the songwriter David Bazan uh, frequently has mentioned this. Like you don't have to be a poet. Um, to have poetry affect you and affect your thinking and things like mm -hmm. that. And that's, and yeah, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to get universal healthcare out of my next chat book, but you know, it's like the, the idea that, um, that just fomenting a, a more well-rounded and, and uh, imagination and more hopefully making people a little more thoughtful is mm -hmm. something that we can accomplish with our medium. Um, yeah, that sort of thing. I hope, I hope, <laughs> hope. Hope, fingers crossed. This is one of those topics where I can easily go off the rails. So do you want to read a poem? <laughs> um, I guess. Uh, or if you have anything else to say, I don't want to cut you off. I guess the one more thing I would, uh, I, I think I'd feel remiss not to bring up is, is that again, like a too massive of a conversation and an old conversation. Um, but, you know, just the, the concept of, what is a political poem? Um, are all poems inherently political? Is everything we do inherently political? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I, I think I know we, we, we both stand from a perspective um, that all poems um, are political, um, you know, whether they're in, uh, directly gesturing to it or not. Yeah, the working title of this episode is The Poems Are Political. <laughs> or The Poems Are Always Political. A riff on right. the personal is always political. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I mean, I guess like as as a writer, sometimes I can know that and I can believe it, and and maybe you maybe lose sight of it sometimes, and then you you know, uh, in in especially in a moment like this, um, where there are so many fires and tragedies and awful things. I meant fires metaphorically, but there are also literal right. fires. But literal fires too. Yeah. Um, um, that kind of you know wake wake me up and remind me to look at my poems with those eyes. Um, you know, and what am I writing about? Why am I writing about that? Yeah, um, I think it's easier for me to think of it as like there's some sort of theoretical underpinning that sounds pretentious as hell <laughs> <laughs> that's always kind of circling what i'm doing you know but i i i know i i wonder and think it's worth challenging myself of like um where can i be more explicit with it um, sure yeah and in what situations um, can I, what situation should I, um, right. you know, and, and definitely one of those things where I have zero answers. And I think as I say this out loud, it reminds me of another conversation a million years ago, but just the idea of, of pushing myself to write those poems and not to, you know, not even, I mean, in general, I should always write poems without thinking about publication, but I think it's, especially some of those, when I'm wrestling with the political stuff of thinking of that, of like, this is an exercise for me and to help me clarify my thoughts more than for anyone else. Yeah, uh, certainly. And I, I would I, like to do more. <laughs> yeah. Not writing enough at all right now. So there's that. But. Fair enough. Well, you did just start teaching at a new job, so you can you can be forgiven a little bit. But um, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if this is explicitly what you're gesturing to, but like, you know, yeah, one thing you, you definitely don't want to do is have an American dirt situation where you're the white person like parachuting in and writing about something that you're not qualified right. to write about or something like that or, or co-opting other stories. But you also don't want to do the, um, 
you know, what Dr. King called the, the white moderate thing of like turning a blind eye and stuff like that. Right. And, um, right. Uh, we are, of course, as always, speaking as two white dudes. Yes. Um, so, and yeah, good points, man. Loaded. So much to talk about. Let's read some poems. Let's read some poems. Why don't you go first? Since uh, that's our uh, format. <laughs> never a surprise <laughs> I might lose my voice this is probably the longest poem I've brought on um, it, is, it is a lengthy one yeah this is uh, The Master's House by Salmaj Sharif to wave from the porch to let go of the grudge to disrobe to recall Ethel Rosenberg's green polka-dotted dress. To call your father and say, I'd forgotten how nice everyone in these red states can be. To hear him say, yes, long as you don't move in next door. To recall every drawn curtain in the apartment you have lived. To find yourself at 33, at a vast expanse, with nary a papyrus of guidance, with nary a voice, a muse a model, to finally admit out loud, then I want to go home, to have a dinner party of intellectuals with a bell, long-armed, lightly tongued, at each setting, to sport your dun gown, to revel in face serums, to be a well-calibrated burn victim to fight the signs of aging, to assure financial health, to be lavender sachets and cedar lining and all the ways the rich might hide their rot. To eye the master's bone china. To pour diuretic in his coffee and think this erosive to the state. To disrobe when the agent asks you to. To find a spot on any wall to stare into. To develop the ability to leave an entire nation thusly just by staring at a spot on the wall as the lead vested agent lead vested agents names article by article what to remove to do this in order to do the other thing the wild thing to say this is my filmdom the master's house and i gaze upon it and it is good to discuss desalination plants and day terroir to date briefly a banker, a lapsed Marxist, and hear him on the phone speaking in billions of dollars, its residue over the clear bulbs of his eyes as he turns to look upon your nudity. To fantasize publishing a po poem in the New Yorker, eviscerating his little need. To set a bell at each intellectual's table setting, ringing idea after idea, and be the simple-footed help rushing to say, yes, to disrobe when the agent asks you to, to find a spot on any wall to stare into, to develop the ability to leave an entire nation thusly just by staring at a spot on the wall, to say this is my filmdom, the master's house, to recall the settler who from behind his mobile phone said, I'm filming you for God, to recall this sad God, God of the mobile phone camera, God of the small black globe and pixelated eye above the blackjack table at Hara's and the metal toothed pit of Kalindia, checkpoint the same. To 
To recall the Texan that held the shotgun to your father's chest, sending him falling backward, pleading, and the words came to him in Farsi. To be jealous of this, his most desperate language. To lament the fact of your lamentations in English, English being your first defeat. To finally admit out loud then, I want to go home. To stand outside your grandmother's house. To know, for example, that in Farsi, the present perfect is called the relational past and is used at times to describe a historic event whose effect is still relevant today, transcending the past. To say, for example, Shah dictator Bude Ast translates to the Shah was a dictator, but more literally to the Shah is was a dictator. To have a tense of is was, the residue of it over the clear bulb of your eyes. To walk cemetery after cemetery in these states and nary a gravestone reading Salmaz. To know no nation will be home until one does. To do this in order to do the other thing, the wild thing, though you've forgotten what it was. Man, that's a poem. <laughs> that's a poem. That is a, that is a poem. I have absolutely no idea where to start. <laughs> um, I'll start with the most obvious thing that uh, is a really great use of anaphora here. Um, mm-hmm. Beginning every line with two, um, especially with how everything in this poem seems to be the speaker trying to do things to like gain approval or an acceptance that will never come. Um, it, it reads to me a little bit like a, like an immigrant situation and, and, I don't want to cast uh, author onto speaker in the poem too much, but I know that Salmaz is an Iranian-born poet who grew up in America. Um, but it's like we were talking about with uh, Philip B. Williams' poem a couple weeks ago, that uh, it's loving a country that will never love you back. Um, and this poem is just an onslaught of pleading to be loved back. But the speaker is in The Master's House, which is a title that feels really deliberate for a poem set uh, from uh, by 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 an American author, by a United States born author, based author. Um, so yeah, the anaphora was effective for sure. Um, and I think so. That just kind of reminds me. Um, it's going to drive me crazy. I I losing the name of um, her first book. In fact, actually, I bet it's at the bottom of this darn thing. If you just click on her biography. It has a number of poems that are like using. I should have relooked this up, um, but like this military dictionary, um, oh. and either like the line starts with just like, and it just goes like straight down the list. I think she rarely like deviates kind of from like the direct text. Um, like the line starts the word, and then kind of has parts of the poem, um, or I feel like there's another one. Um, where, you know, fills in the poem with these specific words from this, um, you know, it, it's it's such a good move um, because just like, yeah, the second you take these terms that are used in military contexts and just like think about them, just like the, the disgustingness of it is just so apparent and kind of right in your face. And yeah, um, and, and it, it feels to me like, you know, for use here is reminds me of that in just the sense of, 
what I got from her first book is, oh my God, this is a, a person who has just like such a incredible willingness to rethink and push language in directions that it wasn't normally going to in just deliberate, um, interesting ways. Yeah. Um, I think exactly like you said, probably why I like this poem and the Philip B. Williams poem and almost any poem is it, um, you know, it rests in some sort of complication. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, uh, it's certainly um, pointing some fingers um, at this country and people in this country. Um, but I don't think, um, you know, that she's not indicting herself in some ways. Um, at least in like her own like complicated feelings about um, writing um, and the situations that she's in. Um, but ugh. yeah. And, and it <laughs> highlights the, uh, the, the pleading, the echoing pleading to go home. Um, mm-hmm. She's from Iran. I do have that right. Right. She's from Iran. Iranian. Uh, Iran. Yeah. Yeah. Born she's... in Turkey, Iranian family. Yeah. Yeah. Iranian family. And Iran was, very recently, like a the picture of liberal democracy um, until the U.S. kind of came in and screwed it all up. And when your best option for another liberal democracy to live in is the country that sort of shadow ruined your own country, Oof. that yeah. is that's a that's a heavy hitting. That's a thing complexity and weight. Yeah, like I can't even remotely get at yeah i think i was i was trying to uh um this is probably on my mind as like a way of maneuvering at things because of teaching composition right now but i was like trying to find um some sort of like this is the line that like helps embody you know kind of centralize the whole thing um you know and towards the end there where she talks about uh, in Farsi, the present perfect is called the relational past is used at times to describe a historic event whose effect is still relevant today, transcending the past. And like, that is the thing that this poem is about um, is yeah. the way that history lingers and exists in just so many disparate, confusing, upsetting ways, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, from previous reading, yeah, I know exactly of, of the his, the events that have happened in Iran have had, you know, personal um, effect on her. But, I mean, it's also, yeah, just that, like, living and existing in this other place, in this country specifically, um, and it just goes off in all these ways that that is complicated, at the very least. That doesn't feel like a good enough word. Right, um, right. At yeah. the, uh, at the, yeah, the, the, at the, the most charitable way you can describe America is complicated, I would say. So yeah, you mentioned, uh, the, the line about, uh, Farsi, uh, the present perfect is called the relational past. Um, right. my actual, uh, one line I wanted to highlight was, um, just a couple lines before that actually, which was the, uh, to recall the Texan that held the shotgun at your father's chest, right. sending him falling backwards, pleading the words coming to him in Farsi to be jealous of this, his most desperate language, yeah. to lament the fact that your lamentations in English, English, your first defeat. What a representation of imperialism in three lines. Oh, um, yes. Uh, <laughs> that is like, that's so, so devastating. And I don't know. I, I, I have a, I have a soft spot for yeah. People who 
can't speak the same language as their grandparents, and that just that, that there's something about that that especially is devastating to me. Right, right. Ugh, that line. <laughs> Ugh. Um, I guess yeah. Just as I was kind of rescanning it, um, I mean this this fits into um, I think what we've talked about many times of, of one of the things that I, I love in a poem and it's it's funny how much I gravitate towards this and stuff that I read as someone who writes fairly narratively <laughs> um, is, is is how much this poem I forget who I'm stealing this phrase from but the, the, a poem that resists aboutness yeah um, oh man that came up in my mind too when we were when I was like prepping for the episode yeah right um, yeah it, it uh, really yeah and just yeah the way and we've kind of already touched on this but yeah the way that um this is about so many things and so complicated and and you know like I, I naturally thought of it as one of the poems when we propose political poems as it you know but like even trying to there's so many ways I could touch on <laughs> politics here and the political there's so much here and um, one, this one thing that connects oh you got uh there's you know this incredible um probably the longest part of it um being uh the the dinner party um, yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. Identifying all the stuff there and, and referring to that place as the master's house. Um, she's, I'm sure, alluding at least in part to um, Audrey Lord and uh, the master's tools won't. Um... Mm. <laughs> yeah, what is <laughs> that? Well, the, the master's, master's tools. tools. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, and, I mean, and goddamn. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the uh, an epigraph uh, or not an epigraph, but a. Uh, a note from my poem, uh, uh, Jose Olivares, uh, who's the poet I'm going to be reading, said, uh, I get invited to these parties and I'm rarely the only Mexican person, but I'm, uh, wait, I'm rarely the only Mexican person, but I'm the only Mexican on the guest list. And that's what this poem made me think of with like, right. with the dinner I, I, party. Did, I did think of that, of, yeah, of that yeah. interconnection and, and, and perhaps part of why, um, both of us jump to poems like these when we think of political poems. Because this does that amazing thing where there are things in here that I, I can latch on to and relate to, um, I guess probably in like very broad strokes. Um, but there's also things in here, I mean, certainly exactly like the lines we're pointing to, her father and the gun being pulled on him, um, you know, that are so far from my experience. And like, I don't know, I guess just all of my whiteness and all of my privilege comes right up top as yeah. I read something like this. Um, and, you know, a, a good discomfort for me to have um, that simultaneously, um, you know, feeling awful about this and feeling for this person and thinking, you know, you know, just like taking some tabs in my head of like, where am I complicit in this? Um, Certainly, you know, because yeah. And it, it starts with um, that line, to call your father and say, I've forgotten how nice everyone in these red states can be right. to hear him say yes, as long as you don't move in next door. It's very easy to think that that is a problem that is other white people. That is a problem that is the wrong kind of white people. Right. But that is not necessarily true. There are plenty of liberal NIMBYs out there and, and plenty of people, plenty of you know moderates not willing to do the legwork for true equity, true equality. And um, a poem like this that is just a, an absolute canon of imagery and situational awkwardness, situational, like, 
just expected oppression, you know, like, right. like with, like with, with, uh, the, you know, I mean, servants, the wrong term, but like, you know, servers at a dinner party or whatever, right. you know, like in the, the bells and stuff like that expected oppression that yeah. is just kind of like we we're saying the way things are. And, um, you know, at what point, at, at what point do you need to examine, you know, your own biases and, and, and behaviors and traditions and right. all that stuff. Yeah. Um, <sighs> it's just like, it, it feels like this poem feels like what it must've been like to look at Picasso's Guernica for the first time, where it's just like an onslaught of just chaotic imagery that just shows you something that you perceive as beautiful, but know is really bad. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it, it's, um, I love it. Yes. It's, yeah. It's not to, not to use the tired, the poem is a painting metaphor, but you know, sure. it's just, it's, it's, it's where I jumped with it. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Tucked in there in the middle, I, I, I couldn't let us go without talking about it, but that, that kind of, I guess the second almost scene, if we're going to call it that, um, that really moment, really that short moment to date, to date briefly a banker, a lapsed Marxist, again, that the people that we're calling out, but just in <laughs> such a funny way. The lapsed <laughs> Marcus, Marxist to describe a banker is the funniest fucking line that we'll ever read on this poetry podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, to fantasize publishing a poem in the New Yorker, eviscerating his little knee. <laughs> um, Leaving that death slap in, by the way. <laughs> um, I I have never uh, dated a banker, um, but that that brought to mind um, the only person I can think of in my social circles um, who's in, in finance, um, and I was I was close friends um, with this person's girlfriend. And she was talking about like his next moves and job stuff and, and how uh, he wasn't satisfied with everybody he was doing. And he wanted to, you know, he wanted to be making the million dollar deals and just like looking at her and being like, what are you talking? Like, this is, yeah, this is, this is all way over my head. Like, there's a really, I'm at a loss for words. Um, I really, I really like how she uses the repetition here, but it's like the two times and specific things and they're slightly re- reordered. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But that, you know, again, that just like gut wrenchingly awful to disrobe when the agent asks you and thinking of that experience of flying, um, you know, and just how much bullshit people have to face in this, in that kind yeah. of context. Um, and that, incredible and now i've lost it um but um to to find a spot on any wall to stare into to, to develop the ability to leave an entire nation thusly just by staring at a spot in the wall yeah again just like it's a really clear direct image it's such a like small amount of space and it's leaving me with like a bunch to think about and a bunch of feelings and um yeah yeah, for sure. Um, that that might just kind of be uh, eight nine episodes in. Uh, Bob and Chris don't find the words to talk about a poem they really like. <laughs> a little bit, what's going on? Here. Eight or nine episodes in, Bob and Chris shut up and let the poem speak for itself. <laughs>
maybe as 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 we've gone over time the past two times, and we've already introduced the segue, we can check out your poem. Yeah, sure. Um, if we were doing ad breaks, I'd say. And you know what else continues the theme? <laughs> <laughs> of middle class white people being called out. <laughs> it's my poem. <laughs> actually pretty good on time <laughs> we should we should right. get going all right <laughs> so, okay uh, as i alluded to this is a poem by jose olivares um a uh, wonderful poet whose book uh citizen illegal is so worth getting it was an anniversary present to me from my wife uh on our um would have been our third anniversary right after our son was born and so i was just like uh, reading this book with a uh, with a with a like three week old cradle in my arm and just loving it, um, uh, yeah. This this poem rules, and it probably has. I don't know if a title of a poem that we read on this podcast will ever be topped. <laughs> this is. I walk into every room and yell, "Where are the Mexicans at?" I know we exist because of what we make. My dad works at a steel mill. He worked at a steel mill my whole life. At the party, the liberal white woman tells me she voted for Hillary and wishes Bernie won the nomination. I stare in the mirror if I get too lonely, thirsty to see myself. I once walked into the lake until I almost drowned. The white woman at the party, who might be liberal, but might have voted for Trump, smiles when she says how lucky I am. How many automotive components do you think my dad has made? You might drive a car that goes and stops because of something my dad makes. When I watch the news, I hear my name, but I never see my face. Every other commercial is for Taco Bell. All my people fold into a $2 Crunchwrap Supreme. The white woman means lucky to be here and not Mexico. My dad sings, or to maldito amor, and I'm sure he sings to America. Iokai and to trumpa alucinado. The white woman at the party, who may or may not have voted for Trump, tells me she doesn't meet too many Mexicans in this part of New York City. My mouth makes an O, but I don't make a sound. A waiter pushes his brown self through the kitchen door, carrying hors d'oeuvres. A song escapes through the swinging door. Selena sings, pero hay como me duele, and the good white woman waits for me to thank her. <sighs> I love that um, poem so much. I have, I have had the good fortune of, of uh, watching Jose read this. Oh, I'm jealous. Um, and it hits that, um, you know, that incredible... Um, yeah, when you're in that live audience and people are laughing and also um, feeling it and a little uncomfortable. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I kind of thought of this as the last one, but also here too. Um, I'm reminded of two different experiences and just like whiteness being centered um, in an artistic situation and performance. Um, one being, um, there's a Morgan Parker poem called Matt um, where she talks about the white dudes she's dated um, and how they're all essentially the same person. And she mm -hmm. says, for all intents and purposes, let's call them Matt. And it's this really funny poem. And I'm 
watching it in this Boston, watching her read this in a Boston bookstore and, you know, thinking of the ways that I am indicted in this poem and looking around the room at the other dudes and being like, are you all feeling as much about this as I, you know, like, right. Right. Um, which also very similarly and like much more intensely um, reminded me of, of uh, watching get out in a Boston movie theater that yeah. I'm sure was 90 plus percent white people. Oh um, man. You know, and like, yes, this movie's very funny, but like we are, all like this is about all of us you know especially in the blue ass state like boston that is your massachusetts um that has so much issues with race but now i've gotten off talking poem oh no yeah yeah, (laughs) all those things just came front and center to me as i was reading this and thinking about it yeah i mean it's it's a lot of why i picked this poem was is included in what we've talked about with uh with your poem and and what we've talked about up top yeah it's it it's it's that really uncomfortable feeling of, you know, you know, directly that you're being implicated in. Right. Um, you know, like we said, the poem is not going to, uh, poem's not going to solve racism, but the, uh, the poem is certainly going to make you think about some policies differently. Right. Um, and, and certainly make you think about shit. Yeah. Get out. <laughs> and, um, and, and where you're watching, get out. Uh, right. Yeah. And who you're watching it with. <laughs> right. Uh, one thing to uh, to implicate myself a little bit. Um, speaking of language, I took three years of Spanish in high school. I've tried to keep up learning. It's uh, really a goal of mine to become fluent. I, I love the language, and I, I just I I would like to be able to speak it. I've worked in restaurants where you have to know at least a little bit of Spanish to uh, talk to uh, your coworkers. Um, I bought bilingual board books for my kid. And uh, head, shoulders, knees, and toes is now cabeza, hombros, rodillas, y deditos in our house. And yet, to make sure I was reading every word right on this poem for the podcast, I had to prep and practice my Spanish, but I already knew how to pronounce hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> I yep. can't spell hors d'oeuvres, right. but I knew how to pronounce it. There is there's something like longstanding and classist and imperialist uh, and just that feeling right there. Um, sure. yeah. Why Why do I know what hors d'oeuvres are when the word appetizers is right there? <laughs> and yet, you know, there are a lot of Mexicans in my neighborhood, a lot of uh, Hispanic people, a lot of Latinx people in the city of Chicago. And I had to check my Spanish pronunciation, you know, like it's, yeah. there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if it makes if any sort of consolation, I had to look up a lot of things um, for the poem that I read, and I know I screwed some of them up. So, yeah. <laughs> Despite all the best prep, uh, again thinking about the, the, these two poems in conversation with each other, um, I, we need a theme song for every time that I, I bring us back to form. Um, but I like that both these p- poems feel like these kind of different kinds of onslaughts. Um, yeah, yeah I, you can look these poems up online. They're very easy to find. Um, but Solange Sharif's, um, again, it's kind of very traditional line breaks, um, but because the anaphora, it has the repetition at the beginning of every line. Um, and then this is a, a prose poem, um, someone's fave. That wasn't <laughs> deliberate. <laughs> and, uh, and it, it, but it, it works so well here, um, mm-hmm. the way that it's kind of like, observation after observation after observation you're not getting a break um sometimes um the observations are like directly like this happened this happened this happened but sometimes it's 
brings it back um, to the past or to a different event. Um, and, and obviously um, those moves in direction um, are, are meant to call your attention to the relationship between those two sentences. Um, uh, and it just works so well. Yeah, I think uh, uh, one to highlight there is when the, uh, right at the top, the uh, at the party, the liberal white woman tells me she voted for Hillary and wishes Bernie got the nomination. I stare in the mirror if I get too lonely. That <sighs> feeling of being at a party and just being really frustrated with who you're talking to and just yeah. going to the bathroom to center yourself and like, <laughs> I don't know, washing your face or like, like, you know, just like taking a sip of water or just looking in the mirror or something. Right. And just being like, yeah, that that feeling compounded with everything else this poem is about. Um, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Every other commercial is for Taco Bell, which again is, is, is a funny line. Um, I will tell you as someone who has recently moved deeper into the Midwest, um, just how many Taco Bells there are. Um, man, yeah. Incredible. I only watch broadcast TV when the NBA playoffs are on. So I'm getting inundated with Taco Bell ads right now. <laughs> Um, and then he moves to that again. It's a funny line, but also just a devastating. All my people fold into a two dollar contract supreme, um, and just, oh, bring, yeah, bringing it right, um, you know, in your face um, to, uh, I'm sure the yeah the experience um, of talking to white people and knowing how little of a reference point they have for you and how like this is what they think um, in connection with. Um, your background and culture and ugh. yeah and not to i'm almost certain he didn't intend this but uh not to get a little too technical but as a former taco bell employee who worked there when the crunchwrap supreme was introduced um all my people fold into a two dollar crunchwrap supreme it is impossible to fold a crunchwrap supreme <laughs> it's a really complicated five-fold thing that you have to do with a large flour tortilla around a uh, tostada uh, with a bunch of filling and it is and and after and once you do it you have to throw it on the grill fold side down so that um, uh, the fold doesn't come undone so it doesn't come undone and it's very easy to not fold it correctly and have all the ingredients come spilling out and it's uh, very easy to break the tostada shell which is a recipe for having someone send your crunch wrap back. Um, it sucks. Folding a crunch wrap sucks. And when he says all my people fold into a crunch wrap supreme, he probably didn't mean this, but it is impossible to fold the entirety <laughs> of the Latinx experience into a single thing. Just right. like it is impossible to fold all the ingredients into a crunch wrap supreme. Um, so it's a roundabout way to say the metaphor. Roundabout way. Multiple levels <laughs> And I'm I'm being a little jokey here, but I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, it's yeah, all my people fold into a single experience kind of right. thing uh, yeah. to to the people that this poem is directed at. Um, right. Is, uh, oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if that Jose, if you're listening, if that was intentional, rad, dude, good job. <laughs> you got me on that on that hors d'oeuvres thing. I, I think you really nailed it with that. I just like my eyes landed on the word again. Yeah, it is absolutely bullshit that I know how to pronounce that. Yeah, can you spell it? Because I can't. No, definitely not. You know definitely. how I spelled it in uh, my notes? Is uh, Here's how I spelled it in my notes. 
H O R space D E A V E S. And I was just like, I'll know what I'm saying. Yeah, close. close <laughs> Not enough. how you spell it. Not how you spell it. Since we're, uh, since we're having a little bit of a breakdown of language frequently in this poem, or frequently in this podcast, um, I want to shout out another Jose poem uh, real quick. I'm just going to excerpt from it. This is, uh, he published this on quarantinetimes.org. Um, it's if you search for Jose Olivares, two poems. This was, uh, yeah, like written and released in conjunction with like lockdown, like way back in March or April or whatever. Uh, but it's called the it's the only it's only day whatever of the quarantine, and I'm already daydreaming of robbing rich people. And uh, I'm just gonna read the first two stanzas. That's it, because it's a long poem. But I would like to punch Jeff Bezos in his stupid face, and I would like healthcare in case my hand bruises. And I would like to live long enough to hug my friends, to kiss my mom and dad on their foreheads, and not worry about infecting them. I would like to live long enough to punch Jeff Bezos in his stupid face again. Is it stupid? Stupid or not, I would like to punch it. What does that solve, you could ask? This isn't a good poem, you could say. And you're right. It's not a good poem. I don't have health care. I don't have health care. I don't have health care. There's no way to make that pretty. And it's just like... Yeah, sometimes sometimes the language just breaks down. Oh, I, I remember seeing that and I had forgotten it. Ugh. Um, I mean, there he's being, yeah, like he calls it out this idea of, of it's so like plain spoken and direct. Right. Um, but I do think in general that's like a really strong trait of his um, is that he moves from really just like saying it plainly um, and, and leading with something that's kind of like that, like the, the kind of the humor comes from the flatness of saying it's just like, here I'm saying it. Um, yeah. But that interwoven, all that. Um, yeah. Are, it's like, the interwovenness. That are so good. Those metaphors that are so good. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Like it, it, it almost, yeah, I guess the, the moments of surprise are like brought even bigger um, because you had some of that like upfront plain that, you know, it's just stating it like it is. 100%. And yeah, like, like you're saying, yeah, since he's so upfront, and like you're saying with the juxtapositions, it really is like a. Um, I imagine that the writing of this poem involved a lot of cutting and a lot of editing and a lot of getting it down to, like these specific things. We're going to put right. these two things together to, uh, um, or maybe it just comes easily to him. I don't know, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's, it's so good. Uh, great reader too. One day I'll know. One, <laughs> One day we'll have vaccines and I'll, I'll know. We're ever out of quarantine, like he will read in Chicago in the relatively near future. Yeah, he's sure. from here, so, yeah. right? Isn't he from here? He's, uh, he, uh, he's, well, yeah, he's from Mexico, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, but. He's from um, Calumet City, I think. Yeah, I think um, that's right. Yeah, 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 because yeah, he had a whole essay about um, uh, Mexican grocery stores down there. Yeah. Um, anyway. We are uh, we are geeking out a little bit. Let's uh, let's pivot to an NBA question before we lose our minds. <laughs> <laughs> Doing this in the evening is weird. This is our first evening. Podcast. This is our first evening podcast. I, which, yeah, I, should also... I feel loopier. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. It, it, it's it's a little looser, and um, uh, I should also point out if you hear the. Uh, <laughs> sound of someone screaming or thunder in the background of this um uh my my kid goes to bed at seven and part of his bedtime ritual now includes uh him sitting in bed for like half an hour to an hour and practicing his falsetto and kicking the sides of his crib so, <laughs> 
I haven't picked it up, but uh, if it's on the podcast, uh, we'll try to edit around it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Um, so since we're not already loose enough, um, in lieu of a uh, like debate question, like a bar question or whatever, I wanted to get just like loose thoughts on the political action you think of, or what you think about the political action the NBA has taken. Um, right. I want to first like shout out the WNBA who's been doing radical activism for years. Highlight that weeks ago they were wearing shirts to games saying vote Warnock, who is the uh, uh, political opponent of a uh, U.S. Senate appointee, alleged insider, trading profiteer, and flat-out racist Kelly Loeffler, who happens to have an ownership stake in the Atlanta Dream. Right. They also wore shirts with uh, seven bullets on the back to highlight the brutality of what was done to Jacob Blake. So I want to shout out the WNBA. Um, but you and I admittedly are more NBA viewers and what the NBA's done, they have a bit bigger stage, bigger platform. Um, so they have these kind of corporate approved Jersey names. Um, they have black lives matter painted on the court. Um, but then the players union did the more radical thing with the wildcat strike. Just want to see what your thoughts were on everything they're doing. And if anything you want to shout out or we wanted to be made more aware of, if anything comes to you off the riff, you can, uh, Go ahead, but I also have some thoughts if you want to think for a um, second. Well, so, you know, I was uh, chatting with friends about this kind of as it happened, and it was a, it was actually weirdly reminiscent of uh, when the league stopped um, because of the first um, positive coronavirus test, mm-hmm. um, where it just, like, seemed so sudden and weird, and I wasn't paying attention to the, the Bucks magic game. I don't know what I was doing, but 40 minutes later, I checked Twitter, and, you know, they didn't come out. And, you know, was trying to scramble to figure out what the hell was going on. Yeah, I was um, deliberately not watching that game. And then I just, like, <laughs> right. like pulled up Twitter and was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Right. And I was, I, you've already framed it this way. I was I was really pleased um, with my Twitter timeline being a bunch of people being like, please stop calling it a boycott. This is a wildcat strike. This is a wildcat strike, <laughs> yeah. like, that means I'm following the right people. Um, I was thrilled that they did it. Um, I think I, you, you're at least hinting at it. I think we're probably both happy that the NBA has like not been silent on stuff. Um, yeah. But I knew going into it, they weren't, they were going to do the bare minimum. Right. Um, and really impressed um, that a team made the call. Um, you know, that I guess the way that it's been reported out is George Hill said he wasn't going to play. And then the whole team followed through. And so they weren't going to play. The magic heard and said, we're not going to accept this forfeit, et cetera. And like all these dominoes fall. Um, my immediate thought as it like kind of grew when there was the possibility of ending the season um, was, was one just like that, that would be incredible as much as I, like I've watched a ton of basketball lately. And it's um, been good basketball. I'd be super right. bummed out. <laughs> right. um, it's, been, but it's been really good for me, but yeah, I was like, it'd be rad if they did it. exciting. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, just kind of, what I had in the back of my mind is like hearing that the players were all going to meet and discuss it um, was just that I, I was wondering, yeah, like who they have connections to or what resources they have connections to who like might have a background in organizing and such. Sure. Um, because yeah. as much as a lot of players um, do great work in their communities and have spoken out on this stuff, um, I am sure a vast chunk of them, um, would not consider themselves activists um, right. in any way. You know, like they are athletes and they really dedicate their lives to that. 
They've worked um, really hard to be where they are, and now it's like, okay, now all the onus is on you to fix police brutality. You right. know, like that's that's unfair. Right. Um, so you know, yeah, I, w- I was curious. Yeah, like what I think needed to happen were you know some actionable items, and and it's this weird like that kind of happened because I guess the there's this pressure on the owners to have the stadiums be voting places if they can. Yeah, I think they did. They did say that all 30 arenas have to be turned into polling places. And that there's already though, like some of them, because of weird loopholes and stuff, can't. Yeah. Um. You know, I mean. Yeah. That's what I would really hope for. Um. Is like the WNBA did. Like the model's already there. Is, um, the the real money and power within the league lies with these owners. Um. And when can when can we start putting pressure on them? Um, yeah. The DeVos team owns the ma- family owns the Magic. Yeah, and I forget which owner it is. Um, there's somebody with a significant ownership stake in one of the franchises who is benefiting from the private prison industry. Yes, I heard about that too. Yeah, I can't remember which one. I don't remember which team it was. I'm not going to um, I mean, like, yeah, I, we can, you know, I I, I can uh, agree with uh, Jose's palm about wanting to punch Jeff Bezos. Um, and as a Clippers fan, I have to remember that like Steve Ballmer is like, I don't know, like 10 names down on the list of richest. I don't even think it's that far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I mean, already I'm again, a uh, shout out to a uh, Clipper blogger, Lucas Hahn, um, who I, I'm pretty sure I started reading him. Like I was a high school teacher and I think he was like a high schooler writing on the, like the big Clipper blog. Oh um, man. Yeah. The one on SB Nation or? Wait, what? SB Nation or? Yeah, it was, well, yeah. they've since left SB Nation because oh, okay. sure, of sure, that sure. whole drama. Yeah, um, yeah. But he actually, he's gone into organizing um, and him and some other dudes like dug up some stuff like here's exactly where Bezos is supporting um, the expansion of the LAPD. I'm not sorry, not Bezos. Um, Balmer is ex- in some way kind of supporting the expansion of the LAPD. Like this is the kind oh, wow. of thing that some pressure needs to be put on. Yeah. You know, and again, I was just, being jaded, I'm not optimistic that kind of pressure is going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, they are, I mean, but, you know, for the first time in franchise history, they are, like, real, real actual title contenders. And if Kawhi and Paul George say tomorrow that right. they're not going to play, um, then 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 that's, that's I mean, it's not going to be a death blow to, to Balmer's uh, uh, portfolio, but right. it'd be a thing which, I mean, you say, you know, you, you said all the money and power does lies with the owners, and that's that's true. But the power of the league lies with the For players, sure. and that's right. what um, that's what I've really liked about all this. Um, I did kind of expect, like, going in that it would be the sort of corporatized, watered-down thing of, like, well, you guys can put, like, phrases on the back of your jerseys and, and, and uh, we'll paint Black Lives Matter on the court and stuff like that. That stuff, at the very least, does get a kid to ask their parents, like, for sure, what does the phrase say their names mean? There's that, you know? Right. Um, but I think the strike that happened, the Wildcat strike, um, being such a visible and instant display of labor power, mm-hmm. I think should be a wake-up call to workers around the country um that you know this stuff doesn't happen without the workers um nobody goes to a game to see steve Ballmer. they go to a game to see Kawhi leonard 
Um, nobody goes to a game to see Dan Gilbert. They go to a game to see LeBron James. And, um, uh, you know, Bezos doesn't make his millions, his billions, without, you know, a bunch of warehouse workers who are forced to pee in bottles because they don't get bathroom breaks. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just hope that this is a very visible and um, uh, inspiring power move for, for, sure. for a, a positive effect on the labor movement in this country. Right. You know. Well, I mean, to, to loop us back a little bit, um, you know, talking about um, poetry and it's, it's uh, the hopeful power of it to, um, you know, crack away at, at failures of the imagination. Um, yeah. Like you're right about like the, the visibility here um, should be like an important thing in, in of itself. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that this should be a thing that can inspire and can make people ask some questions. And, and, and yeah, I, I think there's part of me that like, here's a voice in my set head of that. Like a lot of people I think would look at this and say, you know, but yeah, also they're NBA players. Um, but yeah. the reality is, is that the power that you're talking about is you're right. It's all around. Um, right. And it would be so good. <laughs> There's more of this. Yeah. And well, to, uh, to, to do a loop back into poetry, to talk about language, I didn't know the term wildcat strike until mm-hmm. last Friday. You know? Right. So, you know, I mean, there's a, when, when, when something that visible happens, when they do that kind of thing, it makes dipshits like us think about it, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, cool. I think, you know, I think we, I think we got an episode in there. Talked about a, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing it because I'm not sure about most of what it said. We will see how the edit goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our music is produced by Brendan Johnson. Our art is done by A.M. Strickland. Uh, we will uh, talk to you guys next week. Uh, really love you if you're still listening. My goodness. Yeah, really, honestly. <laughs> Watch me get this down to 33 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>